Good morning. So as Matt mentioned in the beginning of the service, we are in the season of ordinary time in the church calendar. It's a time of hopeful hopefulness, of looking forward and anticipating the return of our Savior, a time where we live out our faith. And ordinary time is not the time that I'm in right now. I am uh, not in a hopeful time. I am in a time that some people call mango season. And uh, if you remember last year, I let you guys in on a little insight of what mango season means to me. Uh, we have three devil trees in our backyard. Some people call them mango trees. And last year they produced about three, probably 3,500 mangoes. Um, that's like not an exaggeration. That's a real thing. So you pick up 400 on the ground so that animals don't take over your backyard. And then as you're picking up the 400, another 100 fall. And you're not allowed to remove these trees because the government, the city tells you you can't, which is awesome. So I have this love-hate relationship with mangoes. A lot of you here love mangoes. They're delicious, but they should never be allowed anywhere near civilization. They should be moved outside of the city, way far away with mango-loving people that can be there to farm them and bring them on trucks to us so we buy them in stores. Not in backyards where you're not allowed to remove them. So if I seem irritable, if I seem upset, it's probably because I just picked up 300 mangoes, of which maybe only 20 I was able to eat. And then I don't even, what do you do with 20 mangoes? I can't make that many smoothies. Also, if you're here and you're on Instagram, I'm looking at you, and you've been putting Instagram pictures of mangoes that you've bought at the store, most likely, said, yay, it's mango season. Don't do that. People like me that have mango trees are mad at you. You're causing the weaker brother to stumble with anger towards you. So please refrain from your mango tweets and your mango Instagrams because it just makes it worse for me. But I think this is, it, it's interesting, this love-hate relationship that I have with mangoes is sometimes, and maybe we don't always admit this, but sometimes this is kind of the way that we come at Jesus and his teachings. We look at his teachings, and maybe you felt this since we've been in Luke, and we've been hearing week after week these messages of Jesus. And you're like, man, I know he's good, and I know that I'm supposed to love him and be excited about what he says, but when I read some of the stuff he says, it's really rough. And if you've done your personal worship this week, you know that this week is one of those passages where you you read it and then you're like, did Jesus really just say that? I mean, what does he mean by what he's saying? I know it's supposed to be good, but it doesn't really seem very good. It seems exhausting and it seems hard and it seems confusing. And I'm trying to see the goodness in here, but it's pretty tough. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at that, where Jesus deals with love and hate. In Luke 14, starting in verse 25. So you can turn there, you can check it out on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. And we're going to dive right in. Here's what it says in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them, he turned and said to them. We'll pause right there. So this is important. There's, Jesus talks to different people in Scripture, right? Sometimes he talks to the disciples, sometimes to the Pharisees, and here to the crowds, meaning he's talking to the disciples, to Pharisees, to just normal everyday people. He's talking to a whole host of people, meaning what Jesus is about to say is for everyone. It's not for different sects of Jews or different sects of people that are maybe interested in Jesus because this crowd has been following him. They've been physically following him. 
Meaning, they're curious with Jesus. They want to hear what he's going to say. Maybe they like what he says. Maybe they're just wanting to see if he's going to do another miracle. But they're following him, and he looks at them, and he says one message that's for everyone. It's applied equally, meaning it's applied to us equally. This is for all of us here. And what he's going to say, in a small nutshell, is there's one type of Christian. There's one type of Christ follower. There's one type of disciple. There's not different levels of it. And this is kind of hard for us to swallow because we don't live in a world that operates like that. We live in a work-based society where we ask the question, what have you done for me lately? And so even in Christianity, we kind of break people down and put them in different groups based upon what they do or what they don't do. Or maybe what they have done and what they haven't done. And so we have different kind of tracks. You know, you have the, the, the pastor track and the elder track and the deacon track and the ministry leader track and the casual Christian track and then the once every six weeks maybe kind of track. We have all these different tracks that we, in our minds, and maybe sometimes even formally, put people in. Depending on what level of a Christian they are. Are they closer to God and farther in their spiritual journey? Are they kind of new and kind of, or maybe just checking it out? We level people. Well, Jesus is going to say there's no levels There's one type of Christian, there's one type of Christ follower, there's one type of disciple, and the warning is it's pretty heavy. So buckle up. If you've done your personal worship, you know what's about to happen. He says this in verse 26. If anyone comes to me, meaning if anyone's going to be a follower, a Christian of Christ, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so in case you missed it, I'll read it again. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Maybe this isn't what you would have expected Jesus to say. Or you're kind of confused on why Jesus, I mean, this is like Jesus, the guy that's like loving. You know, we imagine Jesus two ways typically, as like the meek and mild, smiling, lamb-holding Jesus that's all about love, or the very stoic and sincere Jesus, who's very serious. But Jesus was fully human, right? He had, he laughed, he joked, he had fun, he was lighthearted, he was sincere and serious, he was just like us, yet without sin. And so here he looks at the crowd and he says that you need to hate really everyone that you're close to if you want to be my disciple. And you have to love this about Jesus. He's direct. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He just tells it how it is. He tells truth in love. And sometimes when he tells it, it's really hard to take in, especially in this context, because this is a family-oriented society. Family is supreme. It's the number one thing in life that you are most loyal to. You do and work hard not to shame the name of your family. You do what your family says. You marry who your family tells you to marry. And Jesus looks at the crowd, surely full of families, men, women, and children, and he looks around and he says, listen, I know you're physically following me right now because you're curious, you're interested. If you really want to follow me, you want to be a disciple, You have to hate those people you're standing next to right now. You have to hate your wife and your your father and your mother and your children and your brothers and your sisters, and you even have to hate yourself. This isn't exactly uh, an inspirational speech that would be enlisting people. You can imagine the crowd's like, all right, I'm out of (laughs) here, right? 
But it's important to realize what does Jesus mean by the word hate? Because we read this and we think to ourselves, surely he doesn't mean hate in the way that I'm imagining it. Like to literally hate someone. Because it seems inconsistent with Jesus because Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to love our neighbor as ourself. And also we know that God says that man is made in the image of God. And so to hate another human would be to hate that which God created. So what does he mean by hate? See, hate's used two ways in the Bible. It's used actively, which is the way that we imagine it when we hear the word, to hate someone for what they've done or what they've said or maybe what they haven't done. And then it's to hate comparatively. So back in Genesis 29, we have a story about Jacob and his two wives, Rachel and Leah, where it says this, Jacob loved Rachel, but hated Leah. Now in the story, we know in the rest of the chapters that Jacob didn't hate Leah. He loved Leah. But what it's saying is that his love for Rachel was so great and so far superior to his love for Leah that in comparison, it looked like hate. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's not telling you to actively hate your father, your mother, your spouse, your brothers, your sisters, yourself. He's saying, your love for me should be so great, so far superior to every other thing in life that you love, even those people that you love that are your most closest to, that in comparison, it should look like hate. Jesus is saying, if you want to be a disciple, I I can't just be the number one priority. I can't just be the thing that you're most loyal to. Though he's saying that, he's saying you have to really, really, really love me. Like really intensely love me in a way that is so far superior to every other thing in this life that you love. And so he looks at me. He looks at you and he looks right in our eyes and right to a heart. And he says, stop for a second. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, don't come with anything. Don't come with an agenda. Don't come looking to control the situation. Don't come with demands. You come with one thing when you come to follow Christ. You come with love. Supreme, superior love for him over everything else. And so loving and choosing Christ means heeding his guidance, handing everything over to him. We've been talking about this a lot in Luke, that to follow Christ and to be a Christian is to be willing to part with anything, to hand over anything, to give anything away if Christ calls you to. Because being a disciple takes all of you. Being a Christian means that you're willing to subject and to give over your whole self, your mind, your body, your soul, everything. Meaning it has real life consequences. And you look in the Bible, you see this, right? Noah was called by God to build an ark on land in the middle of nowhere. And what he lose? He lost relationships. He lost his reputation, his self-esteem. Abraham was called to leave his home that he loved to go to a foreign place that was dangerous and treacherous. Moses was called to leave the comfort of Pharaoh's throne room. Literally, he had everything you could ever want in life, and God called him to leave that. David was called to a life he never intended nor expected, and probably if he would have known what laid out, maybe didn't want. Mary was called to have a child. That means she would have to sacrifice her reputation, her family, her community. Paul was called to be single his entire life for the cause of Christ. And we look at these stories, and we see the cost 
of following God. And in retrospect, the brave decision to follow Christ and the cost that it took, we look at all of those stories and we say that was the only decision, that was the right decision, not simply because it was most fulfilling for their life, but also because we look at each of those characters, each of those men and women in Scripture, and we say they were so profoundly connected to God that it was worth the sacrifice. But then we look at ourselves, and we see the same call to us, and we say, ah, man, I don't know if I could do that. Because we live in a culture, in a Western context, where I think we love philosophy. Here's what I mean by that. We like when people teach us things. We like to learn lessons. We like to learn about certain things. And then we like to kind of figure out how we want to implement it. We live in a Netflix documentary culture. If you have Netflix and you're like me, you have like 60 documentaries on there that you think, oh yeah, I'll watch that sometime. Let me put that on my queue. And then like you never do. So you're like, it's like so many, you're overwhelmed. But maybe you do, you know, maybe you put on a documentary about food. You want to learn about the philosophy of food. And so you watch this documentary, you start learning things like paleo and vegetarian and organic and raw and vegan and green and grass-fed and all these things. I don't really understand what any of them mean uh, because if you're like me, you're like, I can never give up burgers or cake or pizza or any of these things. I'm guessing they're not paleo, so I don't know what I'm going to do. But you watch these things. You learn about the philosophy of food, maybe in an article or in a documentary, and you say, man, maybe I shouldn't eat cake and burgers and pizza every day. It's probably bad for me. Um, I'm not going to give it up wholly, but let me try to figure out how I can implement some things I'm comfortable with. I'm going to try to eat more vegetables, or I'm going to take this out and substitute my white bread for my wheat bread or whatever. So you pick and choose, right? Or maybe you learn the philosophy of money. So you learn how to budget, you learn how to save, you learn how to make money, you learn how to look at the trends in the market, you learn how to buy cheap airline tickets at Tuesday on three o'clock are the best ones domestically. You figure it out, right? But do you follow the philosophy of money to a T? Of course not. You pick and choose that which you want to implement that you're comfortable with in the lifestyle you want to live. Because you think to yourself, I know I shouldn't eat out as much, but man, they make it so much better. And I don't have to do anything. Or maybe you think, I mean, it's not necessary to like fine wine and craft beer, but I mean, or maybe you think to yourself, I don't really need that gadget, like an Apple watch, which is really just my phone that's in my pocket on my wrist. But you got to live a little, you know? We love philosophies because we like to pick and choose what we want to implement, what we're comfortable with, what suits the lifestyle that we want to live. And Jesus looks at us and he says, that doesn't work with me. You're not allowed to come to me and say, okay, I'll be a follower of Christ. I'll be a Christian. I'll be a disciple, but I'm going to pick and choose the things you want me to do, Jesus, because I want to make sure it fits with what I want. He shatters our philosophies. He says, you come to me and everything else you love should look like hate in comparison to your love for me. And in this Western context that we live in, we're fortunate people to be able to wrestle with this pick and choose Christianity, or maybe we're actually cursed. The rest of the world doesn't have this luxury, right? You become a Christian. You seek to be a disciple of Christ. You're probably going to lose your family. You may lose your job. You may lose your wife and your children. You may lose your head for a decision to follow Christ. And many of us in this room have lost 
because of our faith. We've lost because we follow Christ. Maybe relationships, family connection. Maybe we've lost the ability to elevate ourselves in our profession because we weren't willing to sacrifice our morality and our faith to get there. We've lost and it hurts and it's hard and it's painful. Especially for us because we live in a culture that elevates comfort and personal happiness over everything else. I like to think of it like this. If you've read the book or seen the movie Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, if you haven't, you have something to do today um, because you need to know this book and you need to read it. But there's a part in the story where this little girl hears about the Christ figure in the story, the lion, Aslan. And she says, oh, a lion, is he safe? Maybe you remember the famous saying, it's safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, Jesus and following Christ is not safe. It's not. And if anyone's ever told you it's safe, it's not. But he's good. And he wants all of you. And he's someone willing to follow. He's someone you should follow. And he says this much in verse 28 through 32, that it's not safe. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. See, Jesus is saying that following him, following Christ is not a reckless decision. It's not just an emotional decision. Though emotions may play into the decision, it is a serious, thoughtful, sit-down, count-the-cost, non-flippant decision because Christ demands all of you, all of who you are, and everything you have. And he says this in verse 33. He says, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Translation, he says, you must be willing to relinquish everything you have, both physical and everything you are, to building the tower of God, to building the kingdom of God, to waging war for the sake of the gospel. You must be willing to give it all away, your loved ones, your desires, your possessions, your ambition, Everything. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us need to leave here today and go out and sell everything we have and give it all away and destroy all of our ambitions and destroy all of our pride and all of our desires and all of our drive, if you will. And then all of us need to find some retreat hut that we can get to. We can put on sackcloth. We can shave our heads. We can go up there and we can chant. And then we can go into the town because we're hungry and we have no food. And we can beg in the town for food. We'll go back up there and we'll chant some more. And we'll all just spread out across the globe. And then we'll be disciples. And that's not what he means, right? He's not asking you to do that. He's saying you need to be willing. You need to hold your hands open with all that you are and all that you have. And say, God, if, if you ask me to give it, or if you want to take it, or if you want to direct it, you can. And maybe it's simply for us a recognition 
that all that we have and all that we are really isn't ours. I mean, none of us in this room decided to be born, right? We didn't decide to make our mind the way that it's made. We didn't decide to look the way we look, and we didn't decide to have the family we have. We didn't decide the environment or the culture or the networks that we were plugged into. We didn't even decide our education, though we think we did. We think we've accumulated everything because of our sweat and because of our drive, because of our ambition or because of our sacrifice. And you know, some of that is true, obviously. But really the question is, who gave it all? Who made you who you are and gave you your desires and your drive and your ambition? Who gave you the family and the network and the resources? And who brought the people into your life that has helped make you who you are and bring you to where you are today? Obviously, we didn't do it. And so sometimes we just have to recognize that it's not us. And we have to look and say, God, where are you calling me as a disciple, as a follower to build your tower? Where are you calling me to build your kingdom? And some of us, it's going to be exactly where we are in our work, in our home, in our neighborhood, in our city. Some of us may be called to leave our job for another job. Some of us may be called to move from one part of the city to another part of the city. Some of us may be called to sacrifice and give away something for somebody else. Some of us may even be called to leave the comfort of where we are for somewhere different or somewhere maybe that seems dangerous and distant. Regardless, it's looking at Christ and saying, Christ, everything I have, myself, my possessions, even those people that I love, they're yours. And I love you more than anything else that when I compare them, it looks like hate because I realize that there's one path It's not a church leader path and a casual Christian path. There's one path. There's one way. There's one type of disciple, and that's an all-in, no-turning-back type. And some of you here that have been spending time in personal worship or read the passage before you came here, you realize I skipped a verse, and you're very perceptive. And you're wondering, why did Carter skip that verse? Maybe because it's like the hardest one of the whole thing. But it's the key to the passage, and when you read this verse, it's going to seem like the heaviest verse, but it really is the lightest. And if you know what it is, you think I've lost my mind. Here's what it says in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Like I said, it sounds like the hardest, right? Whoever does not bear and carry his own cross and follow after me cannot be my disciple. You see, carrying your cross incorporates a lot of things. It obviously incorporates duty. It incorporates taking all that you are, everything you have, and following Christ with it, giving him the ability to direct it. It's not a passive decision. It's an active decision. It's an active surrender of all that you are and all that you have for Christ. You see, if you saw a man carrying a cross in this time, you knew something. That's the last thing that person will ever do. You weren't allowed to like kind of say, you know, I'm going to try out this cross-carrying thing and see if it's fulfilling. So I'm going to carry my cross for a little bit and you kind of walk halfway up the hill where you're going to be crucified. And you're like, it's not nearly as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. So you put it down. You're like, I'm going to go home. I'll try something else. If you're carrying your cross, it's the last thing you ever do. It is literally a symbol that you have stripped your independence You are no longer your own. You are no longer in control. Somebody else is in control. So to carry your cross means it's the last thing you ever do. And 
what Jesus is saying here in this passage is you want to be a disciple. You want to be a Christian following Christ. It means a few things. It means that you have to love me so intensely with such a superior love that in comparison to everything else you love, it looks like hate. You have to say and realize that everything you have and everything you are is not yours and it's his and be willing to hand it over to him. And you have to understand it's the last thing you ever do. It's not a decision that you jump on for a year and then you're, yeah, the Christian thing wasn't really good for you, so you jump off. It's, you're an all-in. This is where life is going and where I'm running after. And you realize it's not safe. It's good, but it's not safe. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I haven't been to church in a while. I just came back today and I don't think I'm going to come back to church again. I'm just going to kind of stay away. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what, I'm just going to, stick with my picking and choosing Christianity. It's a lot easier that way. It feels a lot better. You see, we can wrestle with God over what we encounter in his word. We can wrestle with God over what he says. But we can't wrestle over what he says is a disciple. It's black and white here. A disciple someone that carries their cross and runs after Christ, that loves him in such a way that every, every other love looks like hate in comparison. And now you're realizing that just a little bit ago, I said that this verse is the one that makes it lighter. And now you really think I've lost my mind. So you're tuning out. Maybe you feel like me, right? Maybe you felt like this as we've been going through Luke, where we've been hearing teaching after teaching after teaching, and you feel a little bit exhausted. You feel unmotivated. You feel incapable of implementing like anything we talk about in community group or on Sunday morning because it's, it's too hard. So you feel like a hypocrite. And so you walk away doing only what you know how to do, which is to pick and choose because it's how we live in our culture. So you pick and choose a few things that you think you're capable of implementing and then you'll feel better because you're capable of implementing them. And so you hear a verse like, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And you say, nope, can't do that. Maybe I can choose one thing that I'm willing to hand over to God, so I'll try to work on doing that. But I surely can't carry my cross and give all of me over to Jesus and comparative love. Hey, I I just can't do that. You see that verse, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. It means that your life is a life of sacrifice, surely. It means that your life is a life where Jesus is the number one loyalty, he's the number one priority, and you're willing to give everything over. But I think the more important question you have to ask yourself, and you have to realize when you look at that verse, is that verse is calling you to put yourself in the shoes of a condemned criminal which sounds horrible. Until you realize a condemned criminal that you're supposed to look like. The one that you're following after. And that's Christ himself. Right? To carry your cross and to bear your cross is to identify with Christ. And so we come to church and we read scripture and we go to personal worship and community groups and we feel weighted down and we feel exhausted and we feel guilty and we feel incapable, but we shouldn't. Because as far as God is concerned, if you are here and you have faith and you are saying, 
Yes, I believe in who Jesus says he is. And I struggle a lot, and it's hard. As far as God is concerned, you've already been whipped. You've already been flogged. You've already carried your cross up that hill. You've been nailed. You've been speared, and you've been killed. Why? Because your life is hid with Christ in God. So you put yourself in the shoes of a condemned criminal. What the one that you put your, your the shoes that you put on are the shoes of Christ. And so when God looks at you, He sees Him. He sees righteousness. Tom's been talking about this verse back in Luke nine. That's kind of started and been the backbone of all that we've been talking about since then, which is daily taking up your cross. You know, and surely that means that daily you, you wake up and you seek to surrender yourself, to surrender your selfish ambition and your desires, to surrender all of that to God each day. And Tom's been saying that what happens is when you look at that verse, it's a one-time decision. It's a decision where you look at Christ and you see him for who he really is and you say, I'm going to stop playing around. I'm going to finally make the decision and I'm going to run after Christ. But it also most certainly means that each day you wake up and you remind yourself who you are in Christ, whose shoes you're actually standing in, who you've been identified with, who you've been hid with. Because you see, you've died with Christ. You've been forgiven, you've been accepted, and there's nothing to prove. Nothing at all. You see, this Jesus here that demands your love and he demands your life is the same Jesus that looks at you and says, come to me all who are heavy laden and are burdened and I will give you rest. Christ made you a disciple. You didn't make yourself a disciple. And we shouldn't feel burdened and weighed down by him because he lived and carried that cross for you. Tim Keller says that this passage calls you to ego crucifixion. And I think it's really helpful. He says that ego crucifixion looks like self-forgetfulness. Not self-disdain or self-loathing, but self-forgetfulness. Ego crucifixion says this, I have nothing to prove. I know who I am in him. I know what has happened. Therefore, I don't care if I get snubbed. I don't care if I get that job. It's not the most important thing in the world. I'm living in the shadow of the cross. You see, Christ carried the cross for you so that you can identify with his sacrifice, so that you can receive the freedom and the rest found in his payment for you. And so you can now set out to live excited to lay your life down for him because you found a love that is far superior you found grace that doesn't even make any sense. And so what happens is when you reflect on that, which is the gospel, it should well up emotion in you. And by emotion, I mean love. Real, deep, profound, catch-your-breath type of love. And so Christ is saying here that a disciple, a Christian, looks one way. He loves Christ. He or she loves Christ in such a way that every other thing that you love in comparison looks like hate. And that the trajectory of the Christian's life is not safe, but it's good. And it's a life that demands sacrifice. And it's a life that incorporates your whole self. And so the question for all of us here, whether we've been going to church for a long time, or whether this is our first Sunday, 
is why in the world would you want to be a disciple of Christ? I mean, look at the cost. It's because you found Christ. When you find Christ, when you find the love that he showed and poured out for you, when you find the freedom and the forgiveness and the acceptance and that you have nothing to prove in Christ and his sacrifice and his payment, and when you realize that you are standing in his shoes and that when God looks at you, you're accepted, you're forgiven. You've already been beaten, whipped, nailed, speared, and killed. That causes you to love. Because it's such a superior love to every other thing in the world that you love that the only logical decision is to say, of course, it's not safe, but it's good. Of course, I will seek and desire to give my life, my whole self, and everything I have over to the cause of Christ because that love, it's compelled me to do so. The gospel is quite clear. It says that love breeds service. Service doesn't breed love. You love Christ because you've experienced his love for you, and it breeds service. It breeds you being willing to give over. And so for us in this room, and myself included, we like to pick and choose. We like our philosophies. We like the ability to implement that which we're comfortable with. And Jesus says, that doesn't work with me. You come to me, you don't bring anything. You come to choose Christ and to love him, and everything else falls under that. And here's the last bit of encouraging advice that Jesus gives us, the freeing word. He tells us to carry our cross. Well, the cross was obviously, as we know, an instrument of torture, um, a death penalty. But it was a long process. It was not instantaneous. It was a long and painful and hard process through which you went through carrying it being nailed to it hours and hours. And so when Jesus tells you to carry your cross, you may be sitting here and thinking to yourself, man, that's really hard. That's going to take a long time. Learning, to, learning what it means to be a disciple of Christ is going to be a process and it's going to be painful. And learning how to take everything else that I love in life and subject it to my love for Christ is going to be an arduous and long process. Well, he's told you to carry your cross. And he knows that dying to self is not going to be instantaneous. It's going to be a process. And he's patient. He's patient with us. He's patient with me. He's patient with you. And praise God that he is. So Jesus ends this passage and he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Did you hear Christ today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are patient. You are so patient. Lord, we are slow. We are slow to implement. We are slow to realize. We're slow to love. We so easily hold on to those things that we think are most important. We like to pick and choose. We like to be comfortable God, you are patient and you are gracious, so thank you for that. Lord, we pray today that as we encounter your word, as we look at the call to a follower of Christ being one that loves you so intensely that everything else looks like hate, 
living a life of sacrifice, a life that isn't safe but is good. Lord, that we would first take a second to remember and to realize that we stand in your shoes, that we've been accepted, we've been forgiven, we've been freed, and we can find rest in you. And that, Lord, as we encounter you and we encounter that love that you have for us, sacrificing your life for us and making the payment on our behalf, that we would be so full of emotion, we'd be so full of love, that the only logical decision is to live for you, is to give everything over to you, and to seek day in and day out to remind ourselves who we are in you, and to seek to surrender more to your cause and to your calling. Give us that faith and that bravery through your grace and your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.